Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This morning's first reading is Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 54, and that's on page 999 of the Church Bibles. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The second reading is on the same page. It's Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. David, thanks uh, very much indeed for uh, reading for us. Do keep that Bible reading open, uh, if you will, and uh, let me wish you all a very happy Easter. It is uh, wonderful to see you uh, here this morning. Easter is the most brilliant time of the year, not just for chocoholics, and I love chocolate, and not just because we get a long weekend. I I say we, I mean I don't, Uh, and not just because the spring has arrived and the trees are beginning to blossom and the flowers are already ready to burst open and bring colour to the countryside after a dark, cold winter. I love that. All of that is brilliant. 
But as fantastic as all that is, Easter is the most terrific time of the year because it brings us answers to the most challenging aspects of life. Uh, Shailene Woodley, the American actress who starred in the Divergent film, said, Worry is a product of the future you can't guarantee, and guilt is a product of the past we can't change. And all we have is moments. Do you hear what she's saying? Uh, Because of guilt from the past and a future we can't guarantee, live in the moment. Problem is, guilt from the past we can't change and worry about a future we can't control sucks all the joy and peace out of life in the moment. Guilt from the past eats away at us. Some have more guilt than others. Some deal with it better than others. But all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, look back on life and are haunted by the things we wish we'd never done. So we lament the fact that we we can't turn the clock back. We muse about what we'd do if we had our time again. I sometimes ask people that question. If you had your time again, what would you do differently? It's a great question for a dinner party. And next time you have a group of people around, ask them that question. And as you do, spot the wistful look that comes over your guest faces as they trawl back through the canyons of their mind. On occasions when I've asked people, if you had your time again, what would you do differently? One or two people have said to me, nothing. Absolutely nothing. I'd do it all the same again. And when people say that to me, I have to restrain myself from saying, really, nothing? Because I just think that's unimaginative. Because if I had my time again, I'd try harder to fulfil all sorts of unachieved ambitions. I'd love to have been a professional sportsman. I'd love to have played tennis at Wimbledon. I'd love to have played football for Wimbledon. Even that would have done. Or to be a sports journalist, to to commentate at Wimbledon. And if I had my time again, I'd work harder at school because I was a lazy good for nothing. And now I know that if I'd worked harder, it would have opened up all sorts of opportunities. But you couldn't have told me that at the time. And if I had my time again, I'd have taken the opportunity to do a bungee jump in New Zealand on my honeymoon, but my wife didn't want to become uh, um, you know, a widow too soon, or a jump out of an aeroplane with a parachute, you understand, and I'd have learned to play the saxophone or kept up with my piano lessons and learned a foreign language, and look, I could go on and on. If I had my time again, I'd do so many things differently. And then, of course, there's all the things I'm not going to tell you about, the deep regrets the decisions I made that were so foolish, the actions I took that hurt others. We all have skeletons in the cupboard and they haunt us in those lonely reflective moments of life in the wee small hours when we can't sleep. And we fear those skeletons bursting out of the metaphorical cupboards that we've locked them in. We fear they're going to ruin the present. So we work hard to keep the skeleton cupboard firmly shut, but as we try to keep a lid on the past, we're rushing into an unknown future. And so while guilt from the past ruins the present, so does worry about what lies ahead. Anxiety about the future grips some of us, paralyzes others, while the rest of us just kind of manage to hold it all together. But even those of us who seem to cope still worry about an unknown, uncertain future and those worries rob us of joy in the moment, in the present. We wonder whether we're financially secure for our retirement, for a rainy day. We worry about our health, an old age. And then there's our family. How are they going to do? Not to mention the big issues like Brexit and global terrorism and global warming. There are so many future concerns that we can do very little about. And then, of course, there's the big one. 
the one that we don't want to talk about because we have no answers to it, uh, the big problem of death, always hanging over us, because death always wins in the end. As one wag put it, life is like a game of cards, and it doesn't matter how you play your hand when death holds all the aces. And so we worry about a future we can't guarantee, and we're guilty of a past we can't change, and it ruins the present, and it only gets worse as we get older, doesn't it? See, when you're 12 or 13, the likelihood is you haven't done very much that sort of leaves you with overwhelming guilt, guilt and guilty regrets. And with your whole life ahead when you're 12 or 13, death is so distant it seems irrelevant. But by the time you've reached midlife, past regrets are mounting up and the dawning reality that half your life has gone is enough to give anyone a crisis. And then as life draws to a close... Then guilt and death have an overwhelming grip on us. In the past 27 years of pastoral ministry, I've sat with many people at the end of their lives, and and I can tell you, regret about the past and fear of imminent death dominates the mind. I remember when my own mum was diagnosed with incurable bowel cancer. She looked back on the past, and she said to me once, and I can still remember exactly where I was when she said it, she said to me, Paul, I wonder if I've done anything worthwhile with my life. What followed was a very special conversation and I was able to reassure my mum that she'd not only been a terrific mum but that she had done a very worthwhile thing in raising a fantastic son. And no, no. No, really, my, my, brother, my brother is a brilliant bloke. Um, look, the point is, as you near the end of your life, you will look back, you will have regrets and you will worry about the future. Death is a terrible prospect. And that is why Easter is the most brilliant time of the year. Because at the cross of Jesus and in his glorious resurrection, we find answers to guilt and death. Easter brings forgiveness for the guilt of the past and total peace of mind about the future. And that profoundly changes the present. If you've still got it open, and if you haven't, perhaps you'd like to open it, turn with me to page 999 in the Bibles, Matthew chapter 27, page 999, and uh, the first of the two readings that David read for us. As the events of uh, Jesus' death, as we read them, we discover that if we'd been there in the crowd as Jesus was crucified, all we'd have seen was a man dying a most excruciating death. That's all we could have seen with our eyes. We'd have experienced, verse 45, darkness descending in the middle of the day. We'd have heard, verse 46, Jesus crying out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why, why, why have you forsaken me? And then verse 50, when Jesus cried out in a loud voice again, we'd have seen him die as he gave up his spirit. And if we'd been there that day, I guess, as the crowd started to disperse, we too would have drifted off in silence, I guess, with, well, having witnessed another gruesome death, and we'd have thought, that's it. For sure, there were still things to do. The body needed to be taken care of, a funeral arranged, and in the weeks ahead, there might have been times of looking back over his life, but when all was said and done, as far as we could tell, when Jesus took his last breath, that was it. But turn the page, and Matthew tells us that this death was very different Far from this just being another man dying, two amazing events occurred in Jerusalem that day. Two events that tell us that Jesus' death was like no other death, either before or since. 
Matthew records those two events, those spectacular events in verse 51. The first, um, our first heading, the torn curtain, the past dealt with. Look at verse 51. At that moment, at the very moment that Jesus died, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From the death of Jesus in verse 50, Matthew takes us straight to the temple in verse 51. Matthew is like a brilliant film director as he cuts from the scene of crucifixion where all those verses before we've been focusing on. And then the moment Jesus dies, he takes us out from outside the city where Jesus died to the heart of the temple, the heart of the city, a whole kilometre away in the centre of Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us, he does that to tell us those two events are linked. The death of Jesus tore down the curtain and that is life-changing. You see, the temple curtain wasn't a, a drape up against a window to keep the light out. No, it was a huge and thick piece of material strategically erected to keep people out, out of what was called the, the Holy of Holies, the place in the Jewish temple where God was considered to be specially present The temple curtain sort of hung between the courtyard where worshippers were present and the Holy of Holies where God was present. The curtain was in fact a a huge no-entry sign, a barrier between people and God, a veil that said, you and I cannot get to God. And without putting too fine a point on it, we can't get to God because we have a past, because of those guilty secrets, the skeletons in the cupboard. Our past not only wrecks the present, wrecks our relationship with God. Guilty feelings, guilt ruins relationships. Years ago, when I was in a different church altogether, a man came to see me to confess confess that he had done a terrible thing. And as he told me the story, he had done a terrible thing. He deeply regretted doing it. Part of his regret was bound up with his worry that others could possibly find out about it uh, because there were others involved and and no matter how well he tried to cover his tracks, he couldn't guarantee that those others who were involved wouldn't make it public one day. And so he was desperately trying to keep a lid on his actions from the past, but he feared that in the future his past would catch up with him wrecking his present. And as he told me the story, he said to me, the worst thing of all is that I can't look my wife in the eye. We used to be so close. Now she feels so distant. And the thing was, she didn't even know about what he'd done, but the guilt he felt was ruining their relationship. Now, what is true in our relationships with others is true in our relationship with God. We are guilty. And it keeps us away from God. And some feel that acutely. I meet people who say to me, I can't come to God, I'm too bad. So they stay away from God, and that usually means staying away from church. Look, if that's you and you've dragged yourself here this morning, thanks so much for coming. Others respond in completely the opposite way. They attempt to remedy the situation by doing lots of good deeds, often religious things, in the hope that they'll be able to be good enough to get back into God's good books. But look, doing lots of good things doesn't deal with the past. Well, we kind of know that in, uh, in everyday life. If you've, if you've committed a big, a big crime, you, you can't just say, well, I've done loads of good things. You have to pay for the crime. No matter how much we might do, we're still sinners. Before God, we have a criminal record. We should do time. 
And what's more, God can't have anything to do with sin because he is a holy God, perfect. And the curtain in the temple was a visual reminder of that. But look, Good Friday says, as you face your guilt, you don't have to stay away. The curtain has been torn down. And you don't have to do anything to get back into God's good books. The curtain has been torn down. There's a way back to God. It's through the death of Jesus on the cross. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the Northern Ireland Good Friday Agreement. I can't believe it's 20 years ago. An agreement that ended years of animosity and war between two warring factions in Northern Ireland. Does the name Senator George Mitchell mean anything to you? He played a pivotal role in bringing the parties together. He acted as a mediator. Well, in the same way, there is enmity between us and God. And we too need someone to bring us together. God can't just let us off. That wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be just. We need to pay for our sin and the penalty for sin is death. But Jesus is the mediator. He came, the the God-man. He came to reconcile God and mankind. He lived a perfect life. He had no sin to pay for. He didn't deserve to die, but he loves you and me. He loves us so much he paid the price in death and blood, bringing peace and reconciliation between mankind and God. And we know that because the curtain was torn down in the temple. Isn't that something? Jesus' death brings us forgiveness for our past and puts us right with God. Jesus' death deals with the guilt. And it all comes from him. We see that in the curtain. Look again at the detail in verse 15. The curtain was torn in two from, do you see it there? Top to bottom. The temple curtain was was 30 feet high, as thick as the span of a man's hand. It would be impossible for you and I to tear it. We wouldn't be strong enough. But even if we tried, we'd have ripped it from bottom to top. But it was torn from top to bottom. This was God's initiative. It was his plan, sending his son from heaven. Jesus willingly coming to live a sinless, guiltless, perfect life. And willingly dying a painful, purposeful, sacrificial death. Because God loves you. Isn't that wonderful? There's a way back to God. Not through being religious. Not through being good. Not through any efforts of our own, but through Jesus dying on the cross. The curtain is down, and so there's nothing to stop you and I walking into God's presence. Through the cross, my past is dealt with, and I don't have to feel guilty anymore. I don't kind of have a past hanging over me anymore. God knows what I'm like, and he loves me anyway. And I can tell you as someone who knows what it is to be forgiven... No longer feeling guilty is such a relief. Such a relief. It's life-changing. But apart from the curtain being torn down, there was another thing that happened as Jesus died. It's also there in verse 51 at the end of the verse. And uh, my heading for this is the broken tombs, the future bright. I'll read from the beginning of verse 51. At the moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. 
You see, as Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn and something else happened. There was an earthquake at the precise moment that Jesus died. The earth shook, causing rocks to split and tombs to break open. I went to Jerusalem 10 years ago, and if you've, you've been, you'll have seen what I saw. Uh, from the Mount of Olives, there is a brilliant view across the city. And on the side of the hill are thousands of tombs. And when Jesus died, there was an earthquake, and as the earth shook, some of those tombs broke open. And verse 53, after Jesus' resurrection, people came out of those broken tombs. People who've been dead for years, brought back to life. They came out of the tombs. You see it in verse 53. They went through Jerusalem and appeared to many people. And had we been there 2,000 years ago, we may well have seen them. People who've been dead for years, alive. If we didn't personally witness that remarkable phenomena, we'd have heard about it and then been able to talk to people who could verify it. People who saw dead people raised to life. And all of that tells us that because of Jesus' death on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday, life beyond the grave is available for everyone. It's not just something that he did. Good Friday means there's a a way back to God and being brought back to God deals with death because death comes when we're cut off from the source of life. Now, this time of the year, I love planting seeds to grow flowers and vegetables. I was sort of pottering around yesterday doing just that. I'm no Monty Don, but I know, you know, that plants will die if they have no light and no water. Being cut off from the source of life always results in death, but through Jesus' death, we can be brought back to God through the curtain. We can be brought back to the source of life. So death is not the end. And Easter Sunday proves that. Jesus was raised to life. He conquered death. And now death-defeating resurrection is available to all human beings. And we know that because others came out of broken tombs. See, Jesus' death means we can have life beyond the grave. And that changes everything. This week on Wednesday, I took the funeral of my wife's auntie. Auntie Lenore was 95. She lived a long and full life. But it doesn't make it any easier. Death is horrible. I was there moments after she took her last breath. Death is horrible. And if you've experienced it, and I know many of you have, then you don't need me to tell you that. No wonder we worry about the future. Life goes by in a flash. We're rushing towards death much quicker than we want to and we have no solution. But Jesus does. Easter Sunday says there's life beyond the grave and that changes everything. The Christian singer-songwriter Stuart Townend wrote, No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. It changes everything. Easter deals with a past I can't change. Easter gives me security about a future I can't control. And that transforms life in the present. 
Years ago, I stood next to a man on a beach. I was part of a team of people telling children and their parents about Jesus. And the leader of the team got chatting to one of the dads of one of the parents of the children who were coming to the beach mission. And I, I stood listening to the conversation. And the man, the dad, asked the leader of the team I was on, what difference does being a Christian really make? It's a great question. And the team leader, Richard, Richard Cunningham, said this to him. When I put my head on my pillow at night, I know whatever happens, ultimately everything's okay. Peace of mind, the guilty past forgiven, an uncertain future secure, death defeated, heaven certain. That's why Easter is the most brilliant time of the year. And if you turn to Jesus, Easter changes everything forever. Now some of you here this morning will be saying, you know, I, I do want to know some more. I've been coming for long enough and I've never got this sorted out. I've come for the first time and I never knew all this. Well, look, uh, if you're uh, here as a visitor and you, you can't st- stay on, you know, you're going back home, take one of these from me before you go. This will tell you more. And uh, there's a thing in the back that tells you how to start following Jesus. If you're a regular here and you've never really got these things sorted, take one of these, but also think about the encounters course that begins uh, later on uh, this month. uh, And all the details are there. Uh, You can fill that in. Because Easter is so brilliant. None of us want to miss out.